It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano, Sego, Ani, and Bonjour. I'm Luca Capone, music director for Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and I'll be guest hosting for today, filling in for the great David Moses. Uh, big shout outs to the Golden Knight himself, Andrew St. Germain, behind the boards. And uh, we have a very special program today. One of the one of our country's top music publicists, a music contributor and correspondent with Bell Media, Rogers, Shaw Media, and Stingray. He's been named to Billboard Magazine, Pace Magazine, and the National Post Best on Social Media. Also, he's apparently a massive Calvin and Hobbes fan. I'm talking about <laughs> the great Eric Alper, president of Eric Alper Public Relations and the host of Sirius XM's That Eric Alper Show. Eric, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for the Calvin and Hobbes reference. Nobody gets to mention that. But you know, that's kind of like a comic that's kind of like, I don't know, like Andrew, like can, was that something that was kind of prevalent in our generation when it came to the newspaper, newspaper? like it was, but it was just kind of like in the background, but it was always pretty solid when, if you kind of took the time to take it in. He's looking at us like Calvin and Hobbes, aren't they two philosophers? Aren't they two wrestlers? Are they two? Yeah. You know, Calvin and Hobbes is, is probably the, the only, the only piece of of comic, I mean, you know, there's peanuts and all the stuff that I grew up Garfield and the stuff that I grew up reading on in on Saturday papers. Um, but Calvin and Hobbes is still to me like the truth. Like you 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 read it as a kid or as a young teenager, and you kind of understood some of it, but you didn't understand all of it. And now as an adult, it's like this just hit the nail on so many ideas and philosophies and um, the way that the system is without being like punch you in the face. It, it, it really told the story of the world through Calvin and Hobbes eyes. And I, I still love it because I, you know, it gets a great response on, on socials. Shout outs to Calvin and Hobbes. I know you're not real, <laughs> but I, if you are, I assume you're listening. Uh, the, the tiger and the little dude. Um, so Eric, you're our, you're carrying the torch right now for this fantastic group who's set to release a new album in the spring of 2020. They are Sultans of Strings. Uh, the album would be their seventh um, full length uh, called Refuge. Um, their music is a, a cinematic, culture-based fusion of pop, rock, folk that embraces elements of Latin and Middle Eastern rhythms, gypsy jazz, uh, flamenco guitar. They are super freaking special. They released two videos mm. uh, in the past few months, which are... So fascinating. Um, I'd love to know, yeah, more about the story of uh, this fantastic group. Yeah, you know, Salt and the String, is, I, I'm, I've known about them for a long time. In fact, before I went independent in the music industry, um, I used to work at a company called Koch, and then Koch got bought out in, uh, by Entertainment One, and they had a, a deal with E1 in the US. And I remember being so mad and frustrated that we didn't get to work them here in Canada because they're one of these bands that I love is that they take the the elements and their influences on what they grew up with. And I'm not talking about the music that they listen to as as kids or as teenagers or or young adults who they are and they have a, a one foot in the indigenous world and one foot in the rest of the music that influenced them. So the reason why I love them is the same reason why I love most musicians that are out there is that not only do they get to take um, what they're influenced by, but then they put it out in a present version that doesn't make it scary for people 
and I don't mean that in a bad way. I used to do PR for a label called Putumayo. And Putumayo was, you know, their slogan was guaranteed to make you feel good because it was all this upbeat music from around the world. But I used to tell people Putumayo was a label for, it was like a world music label for people who don't like world music. Like you don't know that you like it until you hear this. And I think that's part of, part of the the bad situation that sometimes we're living in now with segregated radio stations or segregated blogs or segregated um, media outlets that tend to only cover for the audience without giving them, you know, a little bit of something that they're not used to. And Sultans of Strings actually does that for me. Yeah, you kind of nailed it when you when you think. And to be fair, Putumayo is a fantastic label. Uh, but when you can compare like compilations of Brazilian samba music, which is just high energy, yeah. high positivity, and you look at you know Fado music from Portugal, which you know makes the southern blues seem like uh, Katy Perry or <laughs> right, something, it's right. like hold on, there's a lot more in this world that can tap into different facets of uh, emotion. And you're right, yeah, definitely within the songs I've heard so far, and just the stories and the storytellers that they're collaborating with. So. Uh, specifically, the track "The Power of the Land" uh, is a track featuring uh, an incredible uh, folk duo from Ottawa, Twin Flames, as well as Duke Redberg, a legendary Indigenous poet, journalist, academic, and coffee house enthusiast. Uh, how did that kind of collaboration come together? You, you know, when you when you kind of when you play the music that Sultans of Strings do, you get to meet a lot of people in your travels, whether you're on, on tour or whether you're being interviewed with the same article. And you know, this country is is pretty small when you think about it. Even though that you know it's huge in terms of land mass, but the entire population of Canada fits in the tri-state area of. New York, New Jersey, and Boston. So a lot of musicians know one another. And Sultans of Strings um, tours quite a bit right across the country. And actually, they're going out on a on a t- uh, tour in 2020. And it was just through their passing that they got to know one another and meet one another. And there's always that mutual respect. And I think that comes with with age and and taking a look at you know collaboration in general with artists it's they're they're not always looking for well let's team up our audiences together because that's the real cynical attitude of it but for the most part artists are looking to collaborate because they're being offered something that they can actually provide themselves and um you know with those two artists it it kind of it's almost like what took you guys so long Within this specific album, you have collaborations with artists uh, hailing from, we, we mentioned um, uh, Duke Redberg and Twin Flames, who are Canadian uh, Indigenous, uh, but Turkey, Somalia, Iran, Pakistan. Like, this is like, is this probably for the Salt and the String? Is this their most, uh, is this the album with the most collaborations for them? Because yeah. they're primarily a pretty instrumental group, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the 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 way how they're thinking now is like wh- however many songs they're actually going to put on the final release of the album, um, they love to make videos for each of them just to show the visual elements of, of those countries and those continents and those artists from there to kind of open up the doors for world music and indigenous culture in general so that, um, so that it gives people the ability to to learn something from each of the cultures and as they start to do interviews and as they start to make more videos and and uh, you know official videos or live videos then we find out not only about that culture but we also find out something about ourselves too so good on the group for kind of opening up the doors and the borders to what we think music can be and speaking of opening up the doors and opening up borders they are opening themselves to a crazy tour coming up I think they're playing between November and 
March or May. They're playing 700 shows. <laughs> no, yeah, no, pretty, not quite. Pretty much, yeah. But uh, on the 8th, uh, which is third or Friday? Is the 8th? When's the 8th? Yeah, the 8th. The 8th is Friday. Yeah, so November 8th, Friday night, they're playing the Omia Showcase in Toronto. And then they just go on this incredible uh, journey. What can folks uh, expect from this tour? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting tour that they're going to do because they're actually giving back to a lot of the communities and the cities that they're playing. And so it's a little bit of charity, but it's also a little bit of a sneak preview uh, of their uh, refugee album that's going to be coming out next year. Um, it's funny because I haven't seen them play in about two, two and a half years or so. Um, and uh, so I'm going to catch them tomorrow night. But I'm really excited because, you know, when you get, I mean, you guys know this more than anybody else. It's one thing for the artist to continue to keep releasing music in whatever format they want to, whether it's CD or vinyl or streaming or listening to it on the radio from, from Element FM and, and the online world. Um, and it's another to actually go in see these bands play live because that's where not only they make their money but it's how they survive and Salt and the String is absolutely one of these bands that you have to see live because just the sheer amount of members and the excitement they know how to put on a show and it's going to be it's going to be a great tour I'm, I'm looking very forward to it now I have a question that's related not necessarily Sultans of String focused but you know in an age where musical appetites are satisfied through streaming, curated playlists, YouTube and radio. What do you personally foresee as the next steps for musicians, bands to make a difference to make a career for themselves in this upcoming next decade? I think when the music industry stopped thinking about what the artist and what the listener wants. That's when they started to get into trouble. It's no secret that in the early 2000s, when the format of MP3 or WAV files, and I don't want to get too inside baseball, but like, you know, the MP3s were essentially these files that could be downloaded onto your iPod. And it's the, the, the form that we were all downloading for iTunes. When the music industry um, kind of ignored the fact that people were downloading illegally, um, on on hundreds, if not thousands, of sites around the world, they they really didn't put a lot of effort into the MP3 format. They they still hold really really close to the physical format. They thought that people would never go away from owning a vinyl record or a cassette tape or CDs, and with very good reason. They made billions and billions of dollars based on on having that CD format. But when they took the eye off of what the audience wanted, that's when they landed into problems. So I think artists have to realize that even though that every day people like me talk about music streaming services and podcasting, there's still a great majority of people who want CDs. They still want cassettes. They still want vinyl records. So you have to kind of provide whatever format that they want. I used to say that it wasn't my job to tell people how to consume music. I just want them to consume music in whatever way they want possible. And now that we have so many different choices, if you're a high-end you know, user and, of, and consumer of music and you have a $10,000 stereo system, there's like heavy-duty WAV files and FLAC files and high-res audio systems for you that will turn your ears upside down. And then if you're like me that have just a regular computer with basic speakers, I don't need all that. I'm cool with just listening to like Element FM for my computer. I don't need, you know, a, a huge system to enjoy the music that I listen to. So as long as the artists realize that there's a generation of people who don't even want to own anything anymore, 
forget about vinyl record. They don't want to own a car. They don't want to own an apartment or a house. They just want to be able to, with a hit of a button, find what they want when they want. Although, weirdly enough, the, the, I read an article last night talking about how people are still calling into radio stations requesting songs or emailing stations like Element to play songs. And I love that because you think, well, why would they want to do that? Don't they know that Spotify exists or whatever format? And it's like, it's the connection. It's a connection with people like you. And it's the connection with, with the station that people will never, ever lose sight of. So yeah, you can put 45 million songs up on a music streaming service, but there's nothing like getting a feedback from your local radio station to say, yes, I'm going to play that because you want to play it. And also for me, because I have this conversation with folks like, oh, you know, I'm going to listen to my curated playlist, this and that. But like, for me, what's more pure? What is more exciting than learning that we like the same band. We like the yeah. same album. And Everything. if you can connect with a host or something, you're like, yeah, they're plugging the same stuff that I like. Yeah. That's like, it's a monumental kind of feeling, There is right? no better feeling than to hear your favorite song on the radio. There's, there's no better one. I don't care how many how many followers you have to your Spotify playlist and that's all fine and dandy. But you know, this morning we were talking just off air, you know, I heard talk, talk, I heard Thompson to Those were two massive bands in my life growing up as a teenager. And you better believe that, you know, I kept the radio on because it was like, they know exactly the kind of music that I want to hear. And that's why I love, that's why I love this station. It's like, it, it, it's kind of like, it's teaching me every single day about music and about the people in my community um, that I, that no other radio station has to offer. Now I have a question about talk talk because for me, uh, like their 80s stuff, their 80s pop stuff is brilliant. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, same level uh, as just, you know. I'm going to give you a hug right now because I know exactly where you're going. No, but uh, exactly. We got to go into and just to nerd out a little bit. Mm. Uh, and I just want to, because I always, my mind is a little mush sometimes. With Laughingstock and. Spirit of Eden and yeah. Laughingstock, which, yeah. you know, these are the two albums that kind of, you know, game changing in the world of experimental rock, post rock. Yeah. Is this, is this a talk, talk realm that you happily dive into i i love this band i i i liked the band when they first started i thought it's my life was good and and the party's over and like their earlier stuff when they were you know if you love duran duran talk talk wasn't that far absolutely off. and and that was okay i was a huge duran duran fan um but when they hit with the color of spring in 1986 and then spirit of eden and then laughing stock I mean, it got to the point where the record label didn't even want to release that music because they were expecting another It's My Life. And they came out with, you know, a very diverse, very um, sullen, very sparse um, bunch of albums that had no commercial appeal whatsoever. They got Steve Winwood to play keyboards. They were using choirs. They were releasing, they were creating full albums and then scrapping it. Um, those two albums, those three albums really taught me m more about what artists think about more than I think anybody else, because here was a band that could have gone the route of touring like crazy, making boshes of money and just making hits, but they chose to go in a direction that they wanted to. And that was the mark of a true artist. And I've loved Mark Hollis and the guys ever since then. Oh man, I love it. You are listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. I'm Element FM's music director, Luca Capone, filling in 
for the delightful David Moses, and I'm here with the electric <laughs> Eric Alper. Um, yeah, we can just. Oh man, this might this could go for three hours, but we'll try to cut it down. Um, and then in 1986, back in 1988, I was born. <laughs> um, but traveling back into the world of Sultans of String, they're playing this fantastic show uh, at the Omia Showcase on November 8th. And yeah, so we talked about the Power of Land uh, release. The video is out right now. Um, the album Refuge is coming out in the spring. Uh, I'd love to know about the connection that they made with Ifra Mansour uh, for the song "I Am a Refugee." Yeah, this this is a a, a really amazing video that's attracted a lot of attention. You know, um, I I don't know the inner workings of of how they met, but it goes back to um, to the relationship with somebody like Duke, where. Um, because they're doing something so special and because of their touring aspect where they don't just stay within Canada, they tour in the States and they tour in Europe and they tour in all these different places where, um, where they can actually make that connection. But I don't know exactly how they met, but we'll get the guys from Sultans on here very shortly to find out. Oh, I love that idea. So we'll get into this jam and then we're going to take a quick break. So you're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. I'm Element FM's music director, Luca Capone, filling in for David Moses. Back after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. I'm Luca Capone, Element FM's music director, filling in for David Moses. And I'm here with Eric Alper. Uh, now, at this point in the juncture, we dive headlong into the super nerdy music questions <laughs> that I've been struggling with. But, um, you know, we're coming close to the end of the year. It's the end of the decade. I've been scouring my, you know, my top 40 list for each year that I've made uh, since the start of the decade. And I'm curious for you. It's it's a broad question, but if you were to suggest to myself, to Andrew, to Kathy, the great Kathy Sabokin, who's chilling behind the glass... Uh, what for you are some defining albums of the 2010s or the, uh, is that what they called the aughts? The aughts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then the roaring twenties. We're, we're, we're back. Right. We're, we're back to a hundred years ago next decade. What are some albums maybe within a more um, accessible kind of mainstream vibe that folks should kind of lean into that were favorites of yours and maybe some that were more of a uh, kind of a spirit of Eden kind of vibe, a little off the beaten path that folks should uh, dive into. Yeah. You know, uh, whenever you, and there's been a lot of them, whenever you start to see lists of the best albums or best songs of the 2010s, um, it's, it's almost historic when you think about this decade, because this was the decade where after the iPod was released, um, I don't think that anybody can undervalue or underappreciate um, or overappreciate what that little white box was able to do for people. Not only was it able to cherry pick the songs that you wanted back in the 90s and 2000s when it first came out, um, but it made guilty pleasures um, your own. And so people didn't have to share their music just like they did when the Walkman came out in the, in the 1980s. This allowed people to listen to what they wanted when they wanted, however many times they wanted. And you ended up with somebody having ABBA and Kendrick Lamar and Carly Rae Jepsen and Justin Bieber and Buffy St. Marie all on the same playlist because we as human beings don't just fit into one box. 
So when you take a look at the best albums of the 2010s, the Kendrick Lamars, the the Frank Oceans, the Beyonces, the the Carly Rae Jepsen's, um, and Buffy's albums, they it, it they should all be on the same list because not only were were they either politically motivated or racially motivated or um, uh, touched on the economy or touched on in Carly Rae Jepsen's place, like just the fact of having a good time. It reminded me a lot of what the eighties were like with, you know, the nuclear bomb um, shadowing the teenage years of the cold war between Reagan and Gorbachev. And now you obviously have, you know, a president in the white house where he's stirring up a lot of emotions, whatever side of the fence that you're on. And we're seeing that in music. So I think a lot of the best music for me this decade had been ones by artists that weren't afraid, not only to tell a story, but they were also not afraid to take a side, even though that you may disagree with them politically on that side. Cause there's still people who boo Bruce Springsteen whenever he talks about politics, even though you're kind of like, who do you think he is? You know, you should know this stuff before you go into and there's a lot of people who still believe that, you know, like the Dixie Chicks should just shut up and sing. I don't actually, I don't actually believe that. So my favorite albums were, were the ones like Beyonce or Kendrick Lamar that actually, you know, took a stand and took a side. Um, Cause it just reminded me of those great albums in the sixties and seventies from Marvin Gaye or Buffalo Springfield or, or the who or the Beatles. Who are the Beatles? No, I'm just um, <laughs> Four guys from Liverpool, they put out two albums and then disappeared from sight later on. What a bunch yeah. of wanderers. Yeah. Um, I have a quote of yours. Um, if there's a nuclear war, speaking of nuclear war, if there's a nuclear war, the three things that will be standing are Keith Richards, Cockroaches, and Grossman's Tavern. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you have a deep connection to this place. Um, though I am curious because while Grossman's Tavern still is able to do its thing, it's you know still a fantastic, iconic space within the context of Toronto's uh, musical landscape. Um, we're losing venues left, right, and center yeah. in this city, and and you know it's a, it's an effect that's affecting a lot of cities uh, around the country. But using Toronto as the example, you know, you think about. Uh, the Comfort Zone, uh, Holy Oak, the Hoxton, Silver Dollar, Soy Bomb. Like, there's so many Cadillac places. Lounge, yeah. So recently, Cadillac yeah. Lounge too, right? So I'm curious. You know, you've had, uh, you've sat on the Toronto Music Industry Advisory Council. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the future of live music, of of venues in this city. Um, the the problems that the music venue faced in a city like Toronto really aren't any different than any other major city across North America. We were just kind of very blessed for a number of decades to have um, an overextension of, of, of music here in Toronto. And I don't mean that because we couldn't handle it. It's just that when you talk about the Queen Street strip of the you know 70s or you and I we were talking off air about the Yorkville scene in the 60s um to the 90s of of the Horseshoe Tavern or Lee's Palace dominating a lot of these grunge rock bands that were coming up from Toronto and and Halifax um <clears throat> when you end up with a, a a huge amount of of venues in the city especially in in a place like Toronto where um, you have a lot of uh, booming economy situations. You have a lot of condos being developed. You have a lot of architecture that's being torn down and and put up. And this is this is it's been a growing city for the last fifty years and will continue to grow. And unfortunately, it just gets you know too expensive to have a music venue. Period in the city of Toronto. You're also dealing with a generation of twelve to fifteen to sixteen, seventeen year olds who are smoking less. They're drinking less. 
and they're getting their music through music streaming services or through radio stations like Element. No bad thing. But they really don't see the upbringing of their new heroes or heroines of the musical language slogging it out from bar to bar across this great country of ours. This is a real big, tough country to play in. You know, once you get past Thunder Bay, your next music venue could be 24 hours away on the highway. So whereas when you and I were growing up, we would be looking at bands that got their 10,000 hours of practice playing to nobody and their dog and the bartender. It's not like that anymore. A lot of these bands are just creating videos or they're going on TikTok or Instagram, becoming popular. Then next thing you know, they're selling out of the Air Canada Center or, you know, Massey Hall when it starts to come up again. So you end up with a whole generational change. And I think with venues here in the city, we need something that is between 800 and 2,000 seats. We need that middle ground so that the struggling younger bands and artists have plenty of place to play. But it's also before you graduate to the massive arenas, you need somewhere around there, which is why I think, you know, I'm excited that Massey Hall is going to reopen very shortly in 2020. But, you know, that put a big hole in, in, in the city of places to play. Um, but, you know, it, it, it happens. Things always go in cycles. I'm hopefully uh, optimistic that, you know, that the live music industry can survive. But right now, yeah, it definitely seems to be you know, more venues closing than opening. I think we need a few Eric Alper auditoriums to open yeah. around the city and just create this whole new space for folks. Yeah, you know, it, it it's it's also just you know, when whenever somebody says, you know, there's no great rock music anymore or there's no mu- there's no musicians that can play their instruments. It's like that's okay. You know, you get the celebrities and you get you get the legendary artists or the popular artists that we deserve. You get the politicians you deserve. You get the celebrity that you deserve. And the musicians are, are, are you know, no different. So if the teenagers today and the young people of, of, of this city and this country want, you know, pre-packaged, predisposed, um, you know, artists that, that are, you know, whether or not if they can sing live or not, it's not up to me. But if they want those kind of pop artists, then that's what they're going to get. Those artists aren't slogging it out in Grossman's Tavern and Lee's Palace and Horseshoe. They're going right from zero to having four million followers on Instagram. And that's okay. You know, nobody used to say that that's better or worse than what we had growing up. I got a question about an old venue uh, and a band who did kind of experience something like that. Um can you tr- describe your experience uh, watching the police at Larry's Hideaway <laughs> many, many moons ago? Because that's kind of a crazy, kind of similar kind of thing. Yeah, you know what? I wasn't, I wasn't at that show, but I was about four or five years before that. But I did catch a video of that. But that was the oh, era where okay. the police and Talking Heads and REM and the Ramones were playing venues like Larry's Hideaway and Lee's Palace um, brought by the city by two guys that put together a company called the Garys. And back in the day of, you know, the early 1980s, CFNY, the other radio station that's kind of broadcast out of of this building, um, they used to realistically, you know, bring a lot of these smaller, cool, hip indie bands before they broke it big. And the police at Larry's Hideaway is is like one of these bands that, you know, 100,000 people claim to have been there, but they probably played to like 120 people because that was the scene. I mean, it wasn't, you know, we can think of Sting being a, a rock god now and the police being a legendary band, but, you know, everybody started from somewhere. You think of the bands that 
are still out there today, whether it's Honeymoon Suite or or Sticks or Men Without Hats or The Box, um, they all got their start playing to like 12 people and slogged it out and only the best and only the great survived. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but, um, you know, certainly uh, it left a lot of bands in the dust. If you couldn't play Larry's Hideaway in Toronto on a Tuesday with one station that wasn't even that big playing your music all the time. And within those stories, um, I can't stress the importance of a documentary uh, like The Last Pogo. Mm. Like that's huge, just crucialing that time in yeah. Toronto. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you talk about the punk scene, you immediately think of the Ramones or Blondie or the Sex Pistols playing in New York and, and London, England. But we had a, you know, the city had a really great one as well um, with with dozens of bands all getting influences, whether it was from artists like the Sex Pistols or or the Ramones, but it just seemed like it was that perfect moment that you couldn't ask for and you couldn't create unless a whole bunch of people were thinking of the same thing coincidentally at the same time. Nobody asked for the Beatles. Nobody asked for Jimi Hendrix. And certainly nobody asked for the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and and Blondie and uh, uh, and all these other bands that were coming up. So it was just a, a, a complete dissatisfaction with the scene. And the fact that when you looked at those bands, people in the audience realized that, hey, they can do it too. And they didn't need musical talent. They didn't need experience. They didn't need a label, a booking agent, a publicist, or a manager. They can just go up there, make their own colorful designs on clothing and posters, and do it with very little money, and just purge out whatever they were feeling at the time. And that's still the the true spirit of punk that I see in a Billie Eilish, for instance, or even in a Selena Gomez or Miley Cyrus. I still see that 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 spark of punk music in them. Or and then Andrew St. Germain, right here. Right there. He's not that, a, wearing he's not safety pins through his nose and the torn leather jacket. That was what you were wearing yesterday. <laughs> a lot of safety pins, and we love it. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 LMNFM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. I'm LMNFM's music director, Luca Capone, filling in for David Moses. Back after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. I'm Element FM's music director, Luca Capone, filling in for David Moses, and we're chatting with Eric Alper. And I would be disappointed in myself if I didn't ask this question. I am a drummer. I'm a big nerd about drummers. <laughs> Do you want me to drummers. talk slower for you? Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> I see. Now, where did the, when did the drummers become the butt of all the jokes? <laughs> Mm. This is a saucy subject. I, you know what? It's it's funny when I started when I started on social media. It was really just for my pure enjoyment. It was really to post the thing that I wanted to post out there and give my wife a little bit of a of a of a of a of a break from like, hey, do you remember this B side from 1982 that nobody remembers? And then she would look at me like I had two heads. Um, once I started to get a lot of followers on Twitter. Um, I I started posting, you know, just these moments from the studio that happened to me, but I wouldn't ever name names. And then that led to like drummer jokes. And and it's funny because I I I thought that it was okay. Like I thought that it was it was harmless until I started hearing from drummers like that I I represent and they were just like, "Look, dude, like if you're going to make fun of anybody, <laughs> like make fun of the basis." And and then like the basis would be like yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it going. And then so all of these different 
musicians within the bands would be like, you know, the, the lead singers were just like, hey, how come you don't talk about us? It's like, because you're just, you're the lead singer. Like, you're already egotistical, you know? But drummers, though, I, I know. I we know are a sensitive bunch. Yes. And you know what? We have feelings, Eric. Yes, I know. I but know. I'm curious. It's like blonde jokes. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious if Phil Collins is still your favorite drummer. Yes, absolutely. He's He's probably right up there, probably number one or number two, depending on what side of the bed I, I wake up on. Probably my favorite musician of all time. Wow. I love him. So on the topic of Phil Collins as a drummer, because for me, when I think Genesis, it is the Steve Hackett, Peter Gabriel yeah. era, and Phil Collins was the backbone behind yeah, that. Yeah, we wouldn't be friends in high school. Oh, yeah. No, I was uh, I was outside. I never, I never understood nerds. them. And I, and I admire people like you who do, because then when Peter Gabriel went solo, it was kind of like, oh, this is kind of cool. But I never got into, I never got into prog rock. I didn't get into Yes or ELP. I loved Yes when they were 90125. Like, I loved that album with Owner of Lonely Heart on yeah. it because I'm just a pop guy. See, my father, he was the big prog nerd. Right. And that's what we listened to when totally. we were little. So instead of, you know, hearing just what whatever was on the radio, it was like, no, no, no. Let's do uh, Metal by Pink Floyd again. Right. We're going to get into ELP. We're going to get into King Crimson. I'm curious, outside of Phil Collins, are there any underrated drummers from modern bands that you're crazy about that folks uh, out there should know about? Um, You know, it... it... <sighs> It's one of those questions where it would be, you know, I've got like 10,000 albums. Then somebody says, Hey, what's your favorite album? Then you kind of go, go a blank a little bit. Um, I, I, I've always loved, and not necessarily, you know, modern, modern people or, or newer drummers, but, you know, I, the beat and the role of like the guys from Broken Social Scene or Sloan. Oh, yeah. Um, there's, there's so many. You know, I, and I'm going to sound old, and I'm going to date myself because um, nobody else will date me. Um, I'm going to the 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 reason why I think that people like myself kind of listen to the radio today or pop music, and and it's just like, oh, you know, it's not as good as what it used to be. And I think part of that is just that human element, and it's not necessarily of any other instrument. I think than the drums. You know, we, we you'd be hard pressed to find guitars on pop music now. You'd be hard pressed to find any kind of human element on on the drums so i think as long as you can kind of roll and give me something to listen to during the rolls of stuff um that's why i love phil collins because he was just so melodic in in his playing that you know i got in the air tonight's drum roll as my ringer for the last like decade and a half on my phone so not <laughs> only does it freak everybody out when i you know if it's a silent thing and my phone rings um but it's it's like a guitar riff and i love that and i think that's probably why I really didn't get into a lot of the prog rock stuff, except for maybe Pink Floyd or 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 a couple of others. Was um, I just I didn't get into the whole movement of it and all that it encompasses. I didn't get into sci-fi. I never got into Lord of the Rings, and I know that that's not. It's all not uniform the same, but you know the minute that the minute that Peter Gabriel left, and then there were Three's album came out. And Follow You, Follow Me came out in the late 70s. That's when I got involved with them. And then Turn On Again and and Face Value, Phil Collins' uh, debut album. That was it for me. That was one of the very first albums I ever bought with my own money. And that was it. Yeah, we wouldn't have gotten along in high school. (laughs) But we're getting along now. Right, right. Uh, One thing that we can kind of connect on um, is that you have suffered and potentially do suffer from 
uh, Plain Anxiety. Yeah. And I've read that um, Sigaros is a big band for you to just kind of yeah. like cope with that experience. So I- and are there any other albums? I'm curious which Sigurdos album yeah. uh, or albums and which other albums have always been kind of a key thing for you. Because for me, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not great with flying at all. Right. I'm always trying to, like, pinpoint that album that's like, oh, yes. Like, so for me, it's a lot of Brian Eno, a lot of ambient stuff. But yeah. for you, what are your right. uh, key albums? Yeah, you know, my fear of flying didn't necessarily come from anything while it was up in the air. That I, did, I mean, I didn't have a flight of like turbulence and things like that. Um, it, it was just, uh, you know, you as you just get older, you just start realizing that you're 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 hurling in the air at ten thousand miles an hour in a, in a giant steel tube. And then I thought, you know, um, uh, where it started to manifest itself was I went to South by Southwest about fifteen years ago, and the flight was so bad for me, and it wasn't that. Again, anything was up in the air, but I went directly from the airport to the hotel. I called my wife and I said, I'm coming home. And she's like, yeah, I know. Yeah, you're coming home in like five days. I'm like, no, 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 I'm coming home now. I took a Greyhound bus from Austin, Texas to Toronto, and it took me just under three and a half days. That's how badly I didn't want to go on it. Um, I've stopped going to concerts outside of like wherever I can't drive to because I didn't want to fly. I missed amazing conferences at the company because I didn't want to fly to Barbados or Jamaica or Mexico, but I didn't really care because I didn't feel like I missed anything. But the panic attacks got so bad that like I had my luggage at the door and I couldn't walk. And I kind of saw myself and I still do as a pretty, pretty even keel person. But that, one aspect of my life I had no control over. So I went to the doctor and he gave me Ativan. I took Ativan and that was the greatest thing that I ever took to overcome um, just the walking to the airport part of it. But now it's filled, my playlist is filled with with all of their albums plus Talk Talk. Um, the, the, the familiar sense of music to me helps me a great deal because if I start to go, oh, this is a chance for me to play catch up on music that I haven't heard in a couple of weeks, I don't get that sense of comfort. I get the sense of either excitement or what am I listening to? I feel like I'm not I'm not controlling my environment. When it's familiar music that I've heard 150,000 times, that's when I start to become much more calmer because my surroundings then become calmer because of the music that's playing in my head. I mean, it, I mean, we can talk for days about the emotional response and the, the medical use of music to, um, for anxiety, for memory loss, for Alzheimer's, for music therapy in general. Um, and I'm kind of living proof that even as the littlest problem in my life is, oh, so you don't fly a lot, is like, yeah, but that stopped me from doing what I was able to do. But now I'm good. I take a couple of Ativans, I, I pop on that, that Spotify playlist, and I'm off to the races, and I'm good. Ativan sounds like a prog rock album. <laughs> right, it should be. It the, should be an album that everybody should listen to when they have a fear of flying. The Court of Ativan. You are listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. Luca Capone here, Element FM's music director, filling in for David Moses, chatting with that Eric Alper. And I mentioned this band before. You have worked with everyone, every awesome, amazing musician you can even think of. But I have a couple selections, a couple of Luca selections that I got to hear. I'd yeah. love to hear a story about um, your experiences working with King Crimson. 
Yeah, King Crimson, I worked their last couple of albums when they decided that they wanted to go the route of owning their master recording. Um, and that means that the record labels didn't own um, the recording that they did in the studio so they can do whatever they wanted to do. And what they did is they were just releasing these massive box sets of 16 CDs and 20 CDs, live versions of songs. And uh, I, I worked their the, the second last and their third last uh, tour that they did in Canada. And, you know, they're a kind of band that, you know, you have a, you have a group like that whose history is very, um, very well known. You know, they, they don't, they don't suffer the, the media very gladly. They don't like to do interviews. They're all highly professionals. They're, um, they're not just glad handling, you know, people they they want to make sure that everything is up to their level of standards that they want to um but they couldn't have been the nicest people in the world to work with and and everybody there um was amazing to deal with especially when you have a group that their history looms so large over over music in this city because there is really a band that even though they kind of went away for a while, but all their solo members, they never really forgot the city in this country. They still toured even not solo members. Love them. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite groups. Um, the next artist, the mysterious MF doom. <laughs> MF doom. Uh, there, he was on a record label called stone's throw and stone throw was started by a DJ named peanut butter wolf. And, and on the label was MF doom, um, Peanut Butter Wolf, Mad Lib, uh, J Lib, all these, um, uh, all these rappers, but not like hardcore rapper. They were like musicians as well, and they would be genre defining and bending. Um, MF Doom was amazing. The first time that I got to work with him, it was almost delayed because um, a lot of, you know, it. It's funny living here in Canada where we're born with a birth certificate, and then like the next piece of paper you get is your passport. But in America there's a lot of people without passports. So um, a lot of people that was in MF Doom's band didn't have passports because they never left the country. They never had a reason to. They played California, they played New York, they played Boston, they played Cincinnati, and they didn't need to. Um, so we took them, uh, we took, it was a, a tour with Peanut Butter Wolf, um, Mad Lib, Jay Dilla, um, MF Doom, and we took them record shopping wow. in Toronto to... Um, <laughs> to rotate this and send the record man at the time. And I remember um, Mad Lib was buying uh, a bunch of vinyl from, uh, from Holland Oates. And I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I'm a cool, I'm a pretty big Holland Oates fan. Like how come that one? And he's like, Oh, you know, we're just looking for things, you know, we're looking for this or we're looking for that. And then like the very next album that came out from, from Mad Lib, you know, wasn't credited, but you heard like little beats and you heard little moments of that album. And it's like, yes, this is what they do, dude. They spend $3,000 on a record store. And, but that was, that was a great deal of fun taking these guys. Oh my God. That sounds like a dream tour. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and also probably the nerdiest one of all that you might've worked with. Uh, you might disagree, but Stereo Lab. Yeah. Stereo Lab was, you know, when I first started at Koch back in 19, 19- 99 um you know this is what what a what a an idiot and a and a cool guy i was um when i i was working at a record label and they had three artists on the label at the time they're called shoreline records and shoreline had patricia conroy the nylons and the first ep from nickelback and that was really really fun and i got a phone call from our distributor they were the the company that put the records from 
the warehouse to the record stores. And he said, you know, how would you like to work 700 bands instead of working the three that you are working now? And I said, absolutely. Because at the time they had Beggar's Banquet, which was uh, a massively cool label. They had the Charlatan, they had the Prodigy, they had um, uh, a whole bunch of bands that I grew up listening to. And they also had Smithsonian Folkways. And Smithsonian Folkways was one of the reasons why I got into music. It was the music of Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly, among others. Um, so Stereo Lab was one of the very first records that I ever worked back in the early 2000s. And um, it was a great deal of fun because here I was about four years into like my quote, my career as a publicist, but I'm working bands that I had no right to work. And I'm happily saying that now um, because they deserved, you know, they were as big as you can get in the indie rock world. But those were the kind of years where I look on as my formative years, making mistakes privately without screwing up any band's career. But yeah, that whole, that whole early part of working with the charlatans and, and gently working, you know, the, the prodigy or, um, Bob Geldof and all of these amazing artists, Ringo Starr and Sinead O'Connor. Those were artists that I got to work with because the label was just so great at signing a lot of artists and picking up, their their music from uh, from across the world. Eric, I could listen to you talk about bands. For oh, days. I can talk to you all day long, but not about Prague. Oh my Actually, God. I the, the, I, feel like, I feel like come you're on, come on my show back with multiple knives and <laughs> breaking my heart in twelve pieces. But yes, that Eric Alper, uh, Alper show on Sirius XM. Uh, come on my show. We'll, we'll we'll talk all about prog rock. I might have to hold you to that. Okay. Um, Sultans of Strings, they're doing their thing. What what should the folks know about who do you want to shout out let the world know what's going on um yeah you know with sultans of string it's it, it's it's one of these bands that are that are hugely important and and I, and I don't just say that because i'm working with them it just so happened that i choose who i want to work with because i just happen to be in that position after you know 25 years of being in this industry where i don't have to take people just because they're willing to pay me sultans of strings are, are one of these bands that are are hugely important, not only to this country, um, but for around the world, when people think of Canadian music, yes, they're going to think of Drake and The Weeknd and Carly Rae Jepsen and Alicia Cara, but um, Sultans are going to be, I think, one of these groups that um, we're going to be talking about 20 years from now when they receive their Canadian Music Hall of Fame for not only expanding what we think of popular music is, but looking back at this era of their creation of music and realizing that when people talk about Canada as a melting pot in terms of race and culture and creed and community and all of these things that we talk about, this is a band that completely rises from those from those ashes of, of what we're talking about. And I think... Um, yeah, I just I love them to death and I'm so proud and honored to be working with them. And for being here at Element for cuz I know that you guys support them and thank you for that. Thank you for coming through. And where can folks can find more information on what uh, what, what you're working on? Um they can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at that Eric Alper or they can visit the website anytime at thatericalper.com. I love it. You've been listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm Luca Capone, Element FM's music director, filling in for David Moses. Thank you so much to our guest, Eric Alper. You can hear this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M dot C-A. Thank you so much. To the Moment of Truth team, David Moses, Kathy Zaboken, Andrew St. Germain, and 
Sarah Konetsky. Stay tuned for the beat with Cody Coyote. And peace out.